Alright, open up this morning to Revelation chapter 15. It's always a, a nice threshold when we cross into a new chapter. It doesn't happen very often. It's a slow journey. Like a slow-moving bull that eventually travels a thousand miles, so is this study that will eventually complete the book of Revelation. I think it's only appropriate to review some chronology of the book because we're going to see with 15 verse 1, we're moving out of a parenthesis and the chronological narration of the tribulation period continues going back to chapter 11. So let's kind of review, uh, put your thumb on chapter 15, but let's go back to the beginning of the book. Chapter 1 verse 19. Chapter 1 verse 19 is the theme of the book. People get in a lot of trouble misinterpreting the book of Revelation because they forget about the outline of the book as given by Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus gives us the outline. John's told to write three things. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. If we follow that outline, then we can ascertain the plain truth of the Scriptures and not get tangled up in esoteric or mystical interpretations. I'm of the opinion that you know people will say, well, that's your interpretation. If we approach the Scriptures with the right attitude, if we approach the Scriptures with the attitude that this is God's Word, it is the authority, it was inspired by Him, it's been preserved, we can trust it. If we approach the Scriptures with, those, with that attitude, we don't need to interpret it. Because the truth doesn't need to be interpreted. It's very plain. We get in trouble when we try to interpret what is very plain. The Bible says in Peter that there is no Scripture that is of any private interpretation. So when someone tells you that's your interpretation, no. The truth of Scripture doesn't need to be interpreted. It's very plain. And God's been good enough to give it to us in a language we can understand. But the outline of the book... Write what you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are hereafter. What John had seen was the vision of Jesus Christ as relates to the church, the high priest of the church, the uh, glorified Jesus Christ in chapter 1 as he walked amongst the candlesticks, the head of the body, the head of the church. That's what John sees in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are the letters to the seven churches. We talked about how those were local churches in John's day, but they were obviously representative because they weren't the only New Testament churches in Asia Minor. They were local churches in John's day. They are types of churches that exist at all times in the church age. And their order and the, the uh, rebukes and commendations that Christ gave concerning them were also a prophetic picture of the church age, the things which are from Pentecost until the rapture. And then starting with chapter 4, verse 1, John is raptured from the Isle of Patmos up into heaven, a type of the rapture of the church when it happens at the end of the church age. And then we get into the things which shall be hereafter. That's where we are right now. And that chronology is going to resume today from chapter 11. The things which shall be hereafter are what is called the 70th week of Daniel. The time of Jacob's trouble and the tribulation. So when we keep that outline in mind, we can 
keep everything in its proper perspective and context. In chapters 4 and 5, John is in the throne room of God in heaven. And in the throne room with Him is the church. The Lamb comes with the title deed of the earth. He alone is worthy to open the scroll, the title deed of the earth. And as those scrolls, as He begins to open the seals, that's when the judgment falls. When we talked about this, I explained to you that chapter 4 verse 11 is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. That's the most important verse in the Bible, in my opinion. God created all things, and He didn't create for us. He created for Him. What He did, He created for His pleasure. And we've forgotten that. We think that Jesus is for us when we are for Him. We think that God owes us something. Or God would never send a storm to attack a city and cause people to die. Because what God does, He does for us. No. What God does, He does for His pleasure. He created for His pleasure. It was God's pleasure to create. It was God's pleasure to allow man to fall. God's not the author of sin. Sin and trouble comes when God removes Himself. And God keeps His word. When man sins, God said He will die. That's exactly what God said would happen. He does. But God, it was God's pleasure to allow these things so that God could redeem man. It's God's pleasure to redeem man. But it's never His pleasure to go back on His word or to change uh, uh, His way. I mean, not His way. God, to change His mind. God never changes His mind. He changes His way. But what He does, He does for His pleasure. Most important verse in the Bible. And then we got into chapter 5, which I think is the most important chapter in the Bible. Chapter 5, we see that the Lamb holds the title deed of the earth. And He comes to claim it. What was entrusted to Adam, Adam was tricked into giving it to Satan. Jesus bought it back at the cross, the kinsman, redeemer. And He's the rightful owner of this earth. And He's going to come back and claim what is His. That's a very important chapter if we understand what that scroll is. I talked extensively about it. Starting in chapter 6, we have the tribulation begins. The six seal judgments. The title deed of the earth has seven seals. And as the Lamb begins to remove each seal, judgment falls upon the earth. We see the white, the red, the black, and the pale horses. The first four seal judgments. With these, a quarter of the world's population is wiped out. This fifth seal, the martyrs around the altar asking God, when will you avenge us? The martyrs all down through the ages. That prayer to God is a judgment because it guarantees that God will avenge His saints. The sixth seal, an earthquake that literally shakes the heavens. We have earthquakes here on earth. But there's never been an earthquake that shook the heavens. There's an earthquake coming that will shake the very heavens. Chapter 7, we have a pause in the chronology. We're nearing the midpoint of the tribulation where Antichrist reveals who he really is and betrays the Jewish people. The chronology pauses and we, we, move, we, we zoom out to see how God is working even during this period of judgment. 
We see the 144,000 Jewish witnesses that are sealed to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth after the church is taken out. And then we see the fruit of their preaching, which is an innumerable company of Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation that John sees. So chapter 7 is a parenthesis at the midpoint of the tribulation. Chapter 8, we get into the trumpet judgments. The seventh seal judgment is open. The seventh seal, the last of the seals on that title deed, is the seven trumpet judgments. So it's not just one little thing. It's a plethora of judgments. The seventh seal is the seventh trumpet judgment. In chapter 8, we have the first four of seven trumpets. Hail that falls from God destroys a third of the world's vegetation. The sea is turned to blood and a third of the seas are contaminated. A third of the ship, the world's navies are destroyed. We have that mountain or that, uh, that star that falls in, 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 uh, upon the earth and it poisons the rivers and the fresh water. A third of the fresh water is contaminated. And then we have the fourth trumpet judgment which involves the sun, the moon, and the stars being darkened, losing a third of their light, and the day being altered, a third of it contaminated per se. Then we get into chapter 9, the fifth and sixth trumpets, which are also called the first and second woes because of the intensity of their judgment. We talked about internal, infernal torment. The demonic creatures that are unleashed from the abyss to torment men for five months. And the only people that don't experience this are those that have been sealed, those Jewish witnesses. Then we have the second woe, the infernal destruction, whereby not just demonic creatures, not just demons, but fallen angels themselves, connected with what happened in Genesis 6, are loosed. And they're loosed, and they lead an army that kills a third of the men that yet remain on the earth. When you put a quarter that's slain and that's slain with the, uh, the four Trump, first four seal judgments and a third slain here, you've got half the world's population gone. And we haven't even had Armageddon yet. We haven't even had the vile judgments. And you've already got half the world's population is destroyed. Chapter 10, we have another parenthesis. We see Jesus Christ as a mighty angel with the title deed of the earth as He appears on behalf of the people of Israel. Not as the head of the church in chapter 1, but as a mighty angel, the angel of the Lord. Hand, hand, uh, standing on the earth with a title deed open, coming to claim what is His. Chapter 11, we see the tribulation temple. God never commands the Jews to build the temple that will be on the temple mount in the days of Antichrist. We as Christians should not give money to support the temple institute to rebuild that temple. They will rebuild it and fulfill prophecy, but God never commanded it. The only temples God ever commanded the Jews to build were Solomon's temple, the temple that was built after the Babylonian captivity, and then Ezekiel shows us that there will be a millennial temple where Messiah himself will sit and reign. But the temple that the Jews want to build now is not a temple for Mashiach. It's a temple for Antichrist. It's an instrument whereby they will be deceived. It's not a work of God. We shouldn't give to that. That's wicked. It's good because it shows that the Bible is being fulfilled, but it's wicked. Nevertheless, there will be a temple. Just as God says, we, we talked about the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, that returned. You know, the Jews boast in Moses. We follow Moses. Well, they, couldn't, they didn't follow him in Moses' day. 
And they don't, in Jesus' day, Jesus said, if you truly believed Moses, then you would believe what I'm saying because he testified of me. They didn't believe Moses in Jesus' day, and they won't believe him in the days of tribulation because he'll come preaching. And they'll rejoice when Antichrist, the false Messiah, is allowed to kill him and Elijah. So they've never followed. The Jews have never followed Moses. They didn't do it in the wilderness. They didn't listen to him. We're going to talk about the song of Moses today. They didn't hear what he had to say then. It's just words. It's just like people here in America that claim to love our country. They claim they boast about our founding fathers, but they never ever consider or live the very things that our founding fathers warned about. If you whine and cry about the separation of church and state and yet claim to be a patriotic American, you're as big a hypocrite as the, as the rabbi who denies Christ and boasts in Moses. Because you, you, you don't even care about what these men said. You don't care that George Washington said it. It's impossible to rightly govern this world without God in the Bible. Just a hypocrite. There's plenty of that going around today. I don't stand in judgment upon the Jewish people without standing in judgment upon my people. Because we're just as guilty, if not worse. We have the temple, the two witnesses. We have them, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're killed and the world rejoices. Look at how the world rejoices today when a righteous man uh, is brought before the world and, 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 and is meted out to, uh, some form of unfair punishment. Look at how the world rejoices when something bad happens to certain people. It's no big thing that the world would rejoice when two of God's preachers are killed, but they're raised from the dead. And we, we learn at the end of chapter 11 that their resurrection and return to heaven by the power of God is coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet judgment. So we know where we are in the period of tribulation. We're after the midpoint. At the end of their preaching is when is the end of the, the second woe or the sixth trumpet judgment. It's a chronological clue. At the end of chapter 11, the seventh angel then sounds. The sixth trumpet judgment ends with the resurrection of the two witnesses. So we have a parenthesis that spans the whole period. And then it zeroes in on a specific point of chronology at the end of chapter 11. And once these witnesses raise the end of the second woe, then the seventh angel Sounds. Let's go back to chapter 11 because this is the chronology that pauses at the end of chapter 11 is going to pick right back up with 15 chapter 1, verse 1. It says in verse 15, uh, we, we see that there's a, that the witnesses raised from the dead are caught up to heaven, raptured up to heaven. There's a great earthquake and um, a big part of Jerusalem falls. 7,000 are killed. And then it says in verse 14, the second woe is past. We know this is the sixth trumpet. And behold, the third woe, or the seventh trumpet, cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which represent the church, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy 
servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So we have this scene in heaven, the seventh angel sounds, followed by the worship of the church, followed by the worship of the body of Christ. And upon this worship in which the body of Christ praises God for His judgment, it's a glorious thing to praise God for His judgment upon the wicked. Christians act like we shouldn't do that, or that's so mean, or not Christ-like. Well, it is Christ-like, and it's the worship in heaven of the church. Praise God when His judgment falls. Proves He's true. Proves He vindicates His saints. You know, it's a terrible thing what happened in Houston, Texas. Do you realize how wicked that city is? I mean, it had a lesbian mayor. It's that same mayor that tried to claim that uh, pastors preaching needed to submit their sermons to see whether they violated some kind of discrimination laws. I mean, it's a wicked place. Lots of wickedness. That's the headquarters of Joel Osteen and his false gospel. It's a wicked place, a liberal city. Refuses to obey laws in the state of Texas regarding immigration. Always stirring up trouble, the local government there. Is it strange to think that God passes judgment on evil cities? No. Let's call it for what it is. God also puts a hedge of protection upon them that fear Him. I know one family that was right in the path of that storm that supports this ministry that had no damage to their apartment. You know, to their, 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 God protected them. But God, God has His way in the whirlwind. Clouds are the dust of His feet. It's, an, it's a good thing to praise God for His judgment. Vengeance is His. Not ours, His. And to praise Him when He executes it for that which is righteous. We have the worship of the church, praising God for His judgment. And then it says that the temple of God in heaven was flung open. And when it was flung open, the ark of His testament was seen. We talked about this. I believe that this um, is the heavenly pattern of the ark that Moses was told to construct. The ark, to, the ark of the Covenant that was in the first temple was, was taken away at some point before the Babylonians destroyed it and there was never an ark in the second temple. I talked about how I believe Josiah saw what was coming and took it and hid it. There didn't have to be an ark for Israel to have a temple. There was no ark from Zerubbabel down through the days of Christ to 70 A.D. But we see this heavenly scene involving the temple of God the ark of his testament, lightnings, voices, thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail when the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. The seventh trumpet judgment. Then we get into the parentheses we just finished. Chapter 12, 1 through 14, 20. It's centered around two wonders or great signs that John sees in heaven. The dragon, Satan, and the woman, Israel. We see the man-child who's... Uh, Satan's ready to devour and the man-child is caught up to heaven. That's a picture not only of Messiah but of the church. 
at the point Satan's ready to devour, the church is called out. And then he goes after the, remnant, the woman, the remnant of her seed, Israel. Satan's two great enemies. How this parenthesis details, it zooms out on the whole history of conflict between Satan and the seed of the woman, which is Israel and Mashiach. And we talked about the heavenly campaign of this war, the earthly campaign, and the victory campaign. And that victory campaign came to a close with four snapshots, the last being a snapshot of reaping. Two events, two reapings that sandwich the time of Jacob's trouble. The reaping of the harvest, the wheat harvest, the rapture, and the reaping of the vintage, or Armageddon. So now the chronology picks up again. The parenthesis, the zooming out of the age-old conflict, flick zooms back in, and the chronology here in chapter 15 picks up exactly where it left off at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 19, in terms of chronology, is followed by chapter 15, verse 1. And let's just look. This is a short chapter. I'll take it verse by verse. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Once again, the judgment of God being praised. After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. John saw the temple flung open, end of 11. Here he sees that same temple open, containing the ark of the testimony. And the seven angels came out of the temple. So verse 5 is exactly what he saw. In chapter 11, verse 19, and then verse 6 is what happens after the doors are flung open. Okay? See where the chronology follows. What happens? We had the seventh angel sound, the seventh trumpet, the worship of the church, the temple with the doors open, and the ark scene. And now, after the, the trumpet sounds and the temple is flung open, it says seven angels came out of the temple. This is the seventh trumpet judgment. What is the seventh trumpet judgment? It's the seven vile judgments. Just like the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet is the seven vials. So wrapped up in the seventh seal is a terrible, terrible judgment. If you look at the seal judgments, what starts out as judgment, the first, second, third, and fourth judgments, fifth and sixth, it's the wrath of men and the wrath of the devil. But by the time we, you know, allowed by God, but by the time we get to the sixth and into the seventh seal, what we have more so is the wrath of God. And wrapped up in that, it's not just seven, a seventh seal, it's seven trumpets and seven vials. So seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave 
unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Not just a God or the God of the Quran. This is the God who lives forever and ever. God of the Bible. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So, we've exited the parenthesis and, and the chronology, the narration of the tribulation period picks back up. What we're going to see here in the next few chapters the victory campaign that we have a snapshot of in chapter 14 is going to be told as it's fulfilled step by step at the end of the tribulation. So the narrative resumes. Chapter 11, verse 19, the temple is opened after the seventh angel and now something comes out of that temple. And what comes out of that temple are seven angels with seven plagues and the glory of God is such in this judgment that no man in heaven is even able to enter into that temple until these plagues are fulfilled. You know, there's a clue there that even in our glorified bodies, we cannot approach God or see God in all His glory. I'm not sure that any created being will ever see God in all of His glory, especially in the glory of His wrath. Because here, no one's able to approach that temple, even in their glorified bodies, until those plagues are finished. So the chronology resumes. Verse 1, John sees another sign in heaven. Another means in addition to some other signs. This sign he sees of the seven angels is directly tied to the two great wonders he sees in heaven. In chapter 12, the dragon and Israel, the woman. We've talked about that age-old conflict. The two sides, the two enemies. And now he sees another sign in heaven. So this is a third great wonder. Same terminology used. And it's not just a great wonder, a great sign. It's also marvelous. That means what we're getting ready to see is the victory campaign of that great war in detail as it plays out at the end of the tribulation. The director is getting ready to step onto the stage and end it. End the age-old conflict. You've got two adversaries. And now, I don't like to use God, I don't like to speak of God as a referee. A referee is more passive. But you've got two adversaries, a great conflict, and now the umpire is going to step in. Umpire's going to step in. He's going to call Israel out, and he's going to eject the dragon, and he's going to end the game. He's an umpire. So the third great sign is the umpire putting an end to the conflict. So it's tied to that parenthesis we've just seen. The great sign is seven angels having the seven last plagues. This is the seventh trumpet. This is the culmination of the seventh seal judgment. You don't have a repetition of the same judgments told three times. These are successive. And the proof we're going to see in chapter 16 is the first vial falls upon those who have the mark of the beast. So that can't be a restatement of the first seal judgment because 
The mark of the beast doesn't come into play until after the midpoint of the tribulation in terms of of, um, the judgment and the requirement until after Antichrist reveals himself for who he is. He comes in the first seal judgment bringing peace and deceives. So these are chronological. These are not restatements of the same thing over and over that were fulfilled in history somewhere. Like some of these post-millennial replacement theologians claim. In these plagues is filled up the wrath of God. The imagery and the language here is not talking about a cup that's full. It's talking about a cup that's filled literally to the brim to where if you even move it, it's going to spill. These, these vials are full to the brim. And you can't even transport it without something spilling. This isn't a full glass you would drink from or a two-liter Coke that's full and you can open it and it's up to the top. This is literally to the brim. It's almost like a two-liter Coke that's been shaken up. And when you open it, it's going to explode everywhere. It's interesting that the word wrath here in verse 1 of chapter 15 is not a word that's used elsewhere. It's a different word in the original language. And it comes from the same word that denotes anger. Okay? So what we see here is this wrath, it's not the attitude of God's wrath. God has an attitude of wrath towards sin. We have attitudes about things. This is not the attitude of His wrath contained in these vials. This is the expression of that attitude. Every attitude ultimately has some form of expression. The bad attitudes we have to restrain and we pray we don't express them. I can have uh, an attitude of wrath in my heart and I can keep it to myself and there are times when I need to. But that wrath can be expressed in anger. We need to make sure it's not expressed in sinful anger. The Bible says be angry and sin not. There is a righteous anger. But the wrath spoken of here is not God's attitude, but the expression of that attitude. It's a little bit different. It's a strong term. This is not just God having a problem with sin. This is God executing His problem with sin and judgment. John sees these seven angels with the seven last plagues filled up the wrath of God. The tribulation terminates with the wrath of God. You know, as Christians, we experience the wrath of wicked men and the devil. We've never been promised deliverance from that in this life. But the tribulation is the wrath of God, and we've been promised deliverance from that. Those that claim that, oh, the church is not going to be raptured because, you know, we're told to, to, to expect tribulation. Well, they are confusing the, tri- the wrath of wicked men and the devil with the wrath of God. We've not been appointed to wrath, praise God. But we have been appointed to warn people upon whom it comes. And we better step up that warning as the days grow shorter. Because there will be no one left to warn except for a few Jewish witnesses and some preachers in Israel. There won't be warning on the internet because the Antichrist can flip that off in a heartbeat. The only warning left might be printed copies of the Word that we give out now. 
Verse 2, John sees a sea of glass mingled with fire. And on that sea, he sees them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So John sees a sea of glass churned up with fire and standing on that sea is a whole slew of people. Now turn back to chapter 4, verse 6. This is where John has been raptured into the throne room, a type of the church's rapture before the tribulation. And in that throne room are the cherubs, the beasts, the elders which represent the church. Chapter 4 is proof of that because when they begin to sing, they speak of thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. They're representative of the church and then John sees that great multitude. But in chapter 4, verse 6, John says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So this sea of glass in the throne room in chapter 4 is still. And it's empty. There's no fire. It's calm. It's reflective. And there's nobody standing on it. The church is in heaven. We get into chapter uh, 6 with a fifth seal and you have the martyrs of the ages asking God, when are you going to bring vengeance upon the earth? And God says, wait. Just wait. Rest. Because there are more that must join you. There are fellow servants and your brethren that must be killed first to fill up the sin of the wicked. Then I will take vengeance. Now we get to chapter 15, verse 2, and what was still and calm is now churned up and full of people. Who are the people standing there? The people who had gotten victory over the beast and over his mark. The very people that in chapter 14 were told to um, uh, uh, be willing to lose their lives. Just go ahead and die and come on home that you might find rest. Now they're there. The people that God told the martyrs in chapter 6 to wait for are now there. Those fellow servants and brethren that had to be killed have now been killed. And they're now on that sea of glass. And now it's time for God to do what the martyrs requested of Him with the fifth seal of judgment. Now it's time to act. The throne was calm and still. The church was there. The martyrs through the ages. The four beasts. It's interesting that those four cherubs, the one cherub that's not listed is the one that represents the sea creatures. You've got man. You've got the beast of the field. You've got the birds. And you've got, um, uh, uh, you've got the wild animals, the, the uh, domesticated animals, and then you've got the bird, birds or the... Or the uh, and then in man, but you don't have anything representing the sea creatures. And it's interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 28, Satan himself is called the anointed cherub. And then he's described in Job and in Isaiah as Leviathan, the great dragon of the sea. Satan was the anointed cherub that represented or was somehow connected with the sea creatures or sea life. And he's not there because he's fallen. And that's why he takes the form of a great Leviathan. It's just kind of interesting that that segment of God's creation is missing and yet Satan is compared to a great dragon in the sea. 
Here, this sea of glass is churned up, mingled with fire, and it's overcrowded by the tribulation saints. The martyrs cried for vengeance for the church. God said, rest, because there's others that must be killed. 15.2, the others has been fulfilled. They're there now, joining the chorus, crying for vengeance. Now, the vengeance comes. In verses 3 and 4, these tribulation saints now worship God in the same manner that the church at the end of 11 worshipped Him for His judgment. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are Thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are Thy ways, Thou King of saints. Who shall not fear Thee, O Lord, and glorify Thy name? For Thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. The church praised God for his judgment, the church in heaven, in chapter 11 when the temple was open, and now the tribulation saints praise God for his judgment. It says they have the harps of God. This ties us back to the snapshot of assembly we saw in chapter 14, where the um, uh, John hears a voice of people with harps in heaven singing a new song before the throne, before the beast and the elders that no man could learn but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So the 144,000 are able to hear and understand and appreciate this song. No one else can. This is the same, this is the song they hear. The song of Moses and of the Lamb here is, being, is the new song that was heard in chapter 14. It's the same thing. Why is it that the 144,000 could hear and appreciate it and not anyone else? It's because these were the ones who had sown the seeds of the gospel amongst these tribulation saints who then believed and then were martyred and then were able to rest and they were able to appreciate it just like a pastor or a mentor in the Christian faith can know and appreciate the fruit in the lives of those he has mentored in a way that no one else can. When a young man, when I, when I have the privilege of sharing the gospel with a young man and seeing him get saved and then seeing fruit in his life, there's a level to which I can understand and appreciate that fruit even beyond maybe someone else because of that relationship. Paul had that relationship with Timothy, his own son in the faith. We talked about this. Hebrew tells us to remember those that preach the gospel to us, to remember those who have mentored us, to not lightly esteem them, and to consider and never forget what they've done. Sadly, that happens too often in the church. We forget those who God used to sow in our lives. And therefore, we can get our panties in a wad, pick up our ball and go home and just walk off and do something else and totally forget about those that God used to disciple us. There are those that used to sit amongst us that have done that. Shame on them. Shame on them. I pray God it's not done to them one day as was done to those who taught them. But the 144,000 appreciate this song and can understand it because it's the fruit of their labors. And now these are in heaven on that sea of glass crying for vengeance and God is going to bring it. 
We need to make sure that we maintain an attitude of gratitude for those who brought the gospel to us. And in doing so, we're maintaining an attitude of gratitude for God's divine providence. And we should do that. What is it they sing? Chapter 14, verse 3 is chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. The new song of chapter 14, verse 3 is what is called the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb in chapter 15, 3 and 4. Now, what's the song of Moses? Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is reflecting back on a song Moses sang before the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now I'm not going to go through this verse by verse because this is 43 verses. I would like to highlight a couple things. The book of Deuteronomy took place uh, when Israel was on the other side of Jordan getting ready to enter in to the promised land. And the time of Moses' ministry was coming to a close. The new generation that had been allowed to survive after the old generation fell in the wilderness, was now ready to enter the land and to see God's promises fulfilled. And so Moses sits the new generation down and makes sure they understand the law that was given and why the old generation perished. And that's why Deuteronomy comes from the Latin that means second law. It's not a second law, it's the second stating of the law. That's why you'll find... You know, a lot of the words from Exodus and Leviticus restated here in Deuteronomy. And I've said it before, if the Holy Spirit wants to offer commentary on what He's already written, then He's free to do so. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's a commentary, in a way, in a sense, on Exodus and Leviticus. And in Deuteronomy, uh, we have the law. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called Devarim. These are the words. And the titles of the book are taken from the very first phrases. These are the words of Moses at the beginning of Deuteronomy. But at the end of it, Moses, chapter 32, toward the end of the book, Moses sings a song to teach Israel. Uh, in chapter 33, Moses, uh, it, things are turned over to Joshua and the book concludes. At the end of chapter 33, it's evident that Moses himself did not write that. It was probably an appendix added by Joshua and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But Moses says, chapter 32, we can go back to chapter 31 in the end. It says that uh, Moses said they were to gather all the elders and the officers uh, and the leaders of the children of Israel, and he says that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord. The latter days are the times we're talking about. So the song of Moses here is tied to the time of Jacob's trouble. In the latter days, Israel would be utterly corrupt. They'd follow a false Messiah. And judgment would come. Judgment not unto utter destruction, but judgment unto a salvation of a remnant. But Moses himself is referencing the latter days here. Um, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. 
this song, I would encourage you to, to, to study it and to read it. It's very prophetic. There's some interesting things here that shed light on the truth of God and connect this with the book of Revelation. Connect it with God's judgment upon His people and connect it with the restoration and ultimate salvation of Israel. So when you see these tribulation saints in heaven singing the song of Moses and playing on harps, we learn that they are not replacement theologians. Because in calling for the judgment of God, they're also calling for the salvation of the nation of Israel and the fulfillment of those promises. Let's just look at a couple verses here. Chapter 32. This is the song of Moses. It goes through verse uh, 43. Okay? And then we, we, uh, it talks about God's instructions to Moses to, to go up to Mount Nebo and he wouldn't enter in the promised land. And he'd be able to see it before he died. And then God buried him. God buried him because so, he had another purpose for him. And that purpose is in the tribulation. We'll, we've talked about that. But look at some things that are in this song. Verse 4, speaking of the God of Israel, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. What is just and right is what God does. It's not external of His nature. It's not just and right because some other entity says it's just and right. It's just and right because God does it and He is just and He is right. That means that we don't need to make apologies for the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. We don't need to make apologies for the harsh penalties that were given to Israel as a part of their government to execute righteousness and to protect the nation. We don't need to make apologies for the severe capital punishments that were supposed to be leveled on homosexuals, leveled on false teachers, false prophets, the harsh penalties for those who dishonored the elderly, for those who mocked the handicapped, for those who lied and stole. We don't need to make apologies for that. God gave those laws to Israel and their government as a reflection of righteousness. If you want to purge the land... It's like Eric, I like what Eric said this morning, you know, changing the nation doesn't start at the top. We could have a bloody revolution in this country. We could have the liberals and the left wing put down and silenced forever. We could secede from the union and have our own nation. But if our hearts aren't changed, it won't matter. We'll have the same exact problems. It won't matter. Somebody like... Hillary Clinton can be defeated in a presidential election and we could have someone else like President Trump, who's at least sensitive to some things I haven't seen from other presidents in my lifetime, but it won't change anything if our hearts are the same. I like what he said. The change has to be from the bottom up. change has to be from the bottom up. If we're not willing to change from the bottom up, there'll be no change. But I'll tell you, if we want to know how to clean up this land, if we want to know how to purge this land of his sin, we ought to look to the Bible for the answer. We ought to look to Old Testament Israel. We ought to look to the laws God gave them. I don't make any apology for that. Because what God does is true and righteous. That's what it says here. It's what Moses said. Look at verse 8. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. 
Everything God did in separating the nations and raising up the Gentiles was linked to His plan and purpose for a covenant people, the people of Israel. The bounds of the Gentiles were set according to what God purposed to do with Israel. Israel's key. They have not been forsaken or replaced. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the lot of His inheritance. Jacob was the lot of His inheritance on the doorway of Canaan 1,450 years, 1,490 years before Christ. He's still the door of his. He's still Jacob is still the lot of God's inheritance in the tribulation period when these tribulation saints sing the song of Moses. God has a plan and a purpose for His people. Verse ten: Israel is declared to be the apple of God's eye. That has never changed. Woe unto us who fall into the trap that Paul warns and. Romans 11, about boasting against the natural branches. Woe unto us. Israel's still the apple of God's eye. He has a plan and a purpose. He will judge them, but He will save the nation, just like He saved Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus. Verse 15, Jeshurun, that's a, 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 a kind of a nickname for Israel. Waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. This is Moses calling out the people, the new generation. You know, you're getting ready to go in the promised land and look at you. Look at you. You have lightly esteemed the rock of your salvation. So Moses was rebuking the people right there. He knew they would corrupt themselves. It's funny because um, in the book of Amos, chapter 5, we learn, we often think, you know, about Israel traveling in the desert and, you know, they worshiped God and, you know, they just simply doubted one of His promises and then that caused the whole generation to perish. And, man, that was kind of harsh on God's part. But it was bigger than that. It was far bigger than that. If you turn to Amos chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, the prophet asked a question of Israel. God asked a question through the prophet. Have you offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness for 40 years, O house of Israel? No. You've borne the tabernacle of your, of your Moloch and Kia and your images, the star of your God which you made yourselves. Therefore, I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus. Israel wasn't worshiping God in the wilderness as they wandered around. They were worshiping idols. They never worshiped God. God almost destroyed them completely and told Moses, I will fulfill my promises to the fathers by raising up a nation from you. And Moses stepped in and said, wait, please God. Don't give occasion to the nations to blaspheme. And God was merciful. Israel wasn't worshiping God in the desert. They'd already turned aside. And God made the determination when they were in the desert that He would carry the nation away to Babylon. That had already been determined. There were periods that Israel cried out to God, but they were a stubborn and hard-headed people that never listened to Moses. Not to this day. Only a remnant has ever listened to Moses. Only a remnant has ever believed. Lightly esteeming the rock of their salvation. They've done it from day one. But we need to be careful when we consider their 
sins because we've done the same thing in this country. The church in this country has lightly esteemed the rock of its salvation. Turning Jesus Christ into a homeboy or a genie in a bottle, equating salvation with saying a little prayer, equating righteousness with going to church and just loving on people, and yet not loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're guilty of the same thing. And that's why the consequences for us are the same as they were for Israel. Because what was written of Israel was supposed to teach us. But we've waxed fat. Who did Israel worship in the desert? Verse 17, they sacrificed unto devils and not unto God. It's the same today. The God that's worshipped in a lot of churches... It's not God. It's a devil they've created in their own mind to serve their own lust and pleasures. I, I read how there was a statement of some evangelical leaders that came out recently. It was a Nashville manifesto that had some things to say about sexuality according to the Scriptures in view of the spirit of the age that wants to try to say genders between the ears and not between the legs. That kind of garbage. And I was encouraged to see some men of God step out and say some very bold things that are not politically correct about biblical truth. Praise God for that. And I noticed that in response to that, there were you know, mainstream media uh, put out some articles about how these, this statement was an affront to the LGBTQ Christian community. LGBTQ Christian? That doesn't even belong in the same sentence. There's a show I like to watch and sometimes, uh, an older show, and there's a scene in there where uh, money's tight and, and the stove is broken and the mom needs to buy a new stove. And the dad says, well, how much will that set me back? And she says, well, they've got to sell and it'll only be $250. And he says to his wife, Norma, don't ever use the words only and $250 in the same sentence. Don't use LGBTQ and Christian in the same sentence. No such thing. No such thing. We can claim to worship God, but what makes our worship, worship of God is not what we say. It's ultimately what we do that proves the God we worship. They sacrifice unto devils. They weren't worshiping God in the wilderness. God purposes then to judge them. Verse 20, I'll hide my face from them. I'll see what their end shall be. Verse 21, we have the promise of the Gentiles given right there to the people before they go into the land. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with the foolish nation. God purposed to send the gospel to the Gentiles for Israel even went into the land to provoke them to jealousy. That's a ministry. That's why it's important to make Jewish missions at least a part of our Great Commission vision. That we might provoke them to jealousy and fulfill God's Word. That we might provoke them some to emulation. That they might be saved. God says in verse 22, For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn into the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase. So the lowest hell is connected with the earth here. Hell's in the heart of the earth. Hell's not some other dimension. It's connected with the earth. And God's fire of judgment that we're reading about right here in Revelation is going to go even to the lowest hell. There is nowhere to escape. 
Verse 29, Oh, that they, the people of Israel, were wise, that they would understand this, that they would consider their latter end. So Moses is appealing to the people right now as they go into the desert that they would consider the latter end that he's prophesied. All the way telescoping to the end of time. That they would consider these things. Verse 35 is a great verse. God says, To me belongeth vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. It's never ours to execute God's vengeance. Never. We can pray for it like the martyrs in heaven, like the tribulation saints, but the execution thereof is God's. How dare we usurp His authority and His role. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot, Israel, shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things which shall come upon them make haste. This is a great passage because did you know that this is the verse that Jonathan Edwards was preaching from monotone on July 8, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. Making application, not claiming that the church was Israel, but making application from the example of Israel upon the dead church of that day. And that's where revival broke out and a great awakening began in America from preaching hell, fire, and brimstone right out of verse 35. Not preaching God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That never produced spiritual awakening or revival. Oh, that we would preach such things today and God do the same thing for America one last time before He steps on the stage, before the church is taken. Verse 39, this doesn't fit the characterization of God in the minds of many Christians. See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. God kills and He makes alive. God wounds and He heals. Amos chapter 3, the prophet is alluding back to this song of Moses a couple of different times. And he says something that we ought to consider. We ought to consider when there's a unique coast-to-coast full eclipse over this country followed by a monster storm the next week. Amos chapter 3, verse 6, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? That word evil there is not referring to sin but judgment upon sin. Disaster. When there's disaster... God is behind it. That's why the insurance companies call it an act of God. But God doesn't send disaster. Verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He revealeth His secret unto His servants the prophets. He never says it without warning first. He always warns. This country's been warned. We've been warned time and time and time again. Nahum says God uses storms to show His wrath. But praise God, He's not just a storm, He's also a shelter from the storm. Verse 42, this brings us to Revelation 15, what we're going to see with the seal ju- or the vile judgments. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revengers upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations! So, Moses is not calling Israel to rejoice here. He's prophetically calling nations, Gentiles, to rejoice with his people, Israel. 
For He will avenge the blood of His servants and will render vengeance to His adversaries and will be merciful unto His land and to His people. So Moses here is prophetically calling the nations along with Jews to worship God. To worship Him for His vengeance and for His full and final mercy and salvation on the land and the people of Israel. This is the refrain right here. This is the refrain of the song being sung in heaven toward the end of the tribulation prior to the outpouring of the vials. Moses is prophetically speaking of this day when Gentiles of the nations, the church, tribulation saints, and the Jews that are part of that, the 144,000 on the earth who hear and understand this song, the Jewish believers and Old Testament saints that in heaven are rejoicing and praising God for His vengeance and praising God that He's going to, through this vengeance to fulfill His promise to the nation of Israel. Praising God for His judgment and the salvation that comes out of it. Moses was not a replacement theologian. The tribulation saints and the church and those in heaven, outside the temple in heaven in Revelation 15, those with the harps are not replacement theologians. The song of Moses is so tied to the restoration of God's people in the end, in the latter times, that those who teach otherwise end up making a train wreck of all of Scripture. So I'd encourage you to go back and read that at some point as we, and make it a practice to ask God to bring righteous judgment and to praise Him for it. John hears that, bear with me, I think I can get done here. John hears this song of Moses and the song of the Lamb who shall not fear thee? Thy judgments are made manifest. And then in verse 15, And after the, that he looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle was opened. It was already open, And he noticed again that it's opened. Exactly what he saw in 11 verse 19. In 11 verse 19, when he saw it, there was lightnings and thunder and voices and an earthquake, and there was a great sound and light show. And with that sound and light show is the worship here of those tribulation saints understood by the 144,000. And then the temple, the smoke clears and there it is. And what does he see? Seven angels come out with seven plagues. The word used there literally means wounds. Seven wounds. Seven judgments. Seven judgments that are principles that encapsulate the wrath of God. Kind of like in martial arts class in Aikido, we have 15 principles. They're not techniques, they're principles. I show you a technique, you learn a technique. I show you a principle, you have a thousand techniques. In these vials are summed up the wrath of God. Seven principles of His wrath upon the wicked. Seven wounds reserved for the earth. In chapter 11, verse 15... The seventh angel sounds, and now the seven angels with the seven plagues come out. So this is the seventh trumpet judgment. It is the conclusion of the seventh seal. In verse 6 it says the seven angels 
were clothed in pure and white linen, and they had their breasts girded with golden girdles. That's kind of interesting because in chapter 19, verse 10, we're told that... uh, uh, Let's see, that's not correct. Hmm. Verse 8, we're told that fine linen, clean and white, is the righteousness of the saints. These angels of the plagues are clothed in the same garment that we're told represents the righteousness of the saints. Why are they clothed in this? Because what they're about to do is the vengeance for the saints. It's connected to the cries of the fifth seal of the martyrs. They're clothed in the very garments of the saints because they will be the instruments whereby God instigates His vengeance for the saints. But they have golden girdles as well. What's that a reference to? Turn back to Revelation 1. John has a vision of the things that... In verse 19, he's told to write down the things he has seen, and that was a vision of Christ in chapter 1. In chapter 13, it says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about his paps with a golden girdle. Paps is a reference to the breast. He had a golden girdle about his breast, just like these angels in chapter 15. In chapter 1, the golden girdle symbolized the Son of Man as head and king of the church. And now these angels come out clothed similarity. Clothed in white linen, linen, vengeance for the saints, and having golden girdles just like the head of the church, showing us that what they are about to do is a direct order coming straight down from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an order given by Jesus for wrath to be poured out upon the earth. They represent Him. These angels are ambassadors that represent the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they're dressed up like Him. Jesus Christ here, in and through these judgments, has taken up an offense for His people. And His wrath will be great. He will fight and destroy the wicked who have persecuted His people. As I've said before, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Boy, is He mad. Mad enough to give a direct order to seven angels to pour out overflowing cups of wrath upon the earth. And you're going to see that the earth is ransacked. There's basically nothing left by the time this is done. Verse 7, one of the four beasts, that was one of the cherubs, uh, comes over to the seven angels. Uh, and gives them seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. Now it's funny, the word translated vile in the King James, you'll see in modern versions, they change it to bowls. I mean, that's just another reason oh, we've got to change a word so we can be different and get our copyright uh, commissions. There's no reason to change it. These are not bowls. These are vials. It's like a, uh, it's like a, a vial uh, with a long skinny neck. And the proof of that is the Greek word that's used here is the word file. It's the same word from which we get the English word vile. It's vile. So vile is correct. It's it's the word that goes back to the Greek word file. A glass bottle. In Greek, it was a glass bottle used for holding liquors and strong medicine. Who puts liquor and strong medicine in a big old open bowl? It's not a bowl, it's a vial. 
kind of like what you see in a science lab in school. Stuff in a science lab, strange liquids and glass beakers, you know, that kind of have a wide bottom and a narrow neck, and you know you shouldn't mess with them. You know by virtue of the color of it, the shape of the bottle, I'm not going to mess with that. That's what we're talking about here. The wrath of God are in vials. Just by the shape of them alone, you know you better not mess with them. This means business. Not the wrath of wicked men and the devil, but the wrath of God are contained in these vials. I had a vial I wanted to bring today and show you something we dug up from our backyard. Uh, it's colored glass and I left it, uh, left it forgot. But this is the wrath of God. Seven vials containing the wrath of God. Not the attitude of wrath, but the expression thereof. Full to the brim. What God? Wrath of God? Well, which God? It's the God who liveth forever and ever. That's the God of the Bible. It's not the God of man-made religion. It's not the weak God in the minds of many people that claim to follow Him. It's not the God of the Quran. It's not Buddha who people worship as God, but He never claimed to be God. It's not the Hindu deities about which the Hindu scriptures even say that the day will come when all of these gods will be destroyed. Even the Hindu scriptures acknowledges that there's a God who lives forever and ever, and one day all of these deities will be destroyed. The problem with the Hindus is they've rejected the revelation from God and say, well, yeah, we know there's this great God who lives forever and ever, but we can't understand Him. The ones we can see, taste, and feel walk amongst us. We're just going to worship what we can know. Foolishness. That's why every time I preach in a South Asian context involving Hindus, I always start with the Creator. And I don't get any argument about the Creator. But when we start talking about turning from idols, that's where we get the argument because people are scared to death of their deities. But this is not such a deity. This is the one who will destroy all other deities. The one who lives forever and ever. A couple of things that we're told as the church as we consider the wrath of God here. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, I'll just, I'm almost finished. I think I'm going to fulfill my promise if you just give me a few minutes. We did start a little later today, so it's not that I'm blabbing on and on. 2 Thessalonians 2. We're told about something, a what and a he that restrains evil right now. And that what and that he being taken out of the way. The Holy Spirit in the church. And then the wicked, the wicked one will be revealed. And then will come a time of great judgment and deception to bring about damnation. And this is the fulfillment of that with the seven vials. I'm not going to read into that right now, but turn in first excuse me. First Thessalonians five nine, in view of that context that Paul later writes to the Thessalonians. For God hath not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're getting ready to read about, my friends, is not something we've been appointed to. We're not appointed to the wrath of God. In Jesus Christ, we can escape it. So there's no reason to be afraid of these things. Children, there's no reason to be afraid. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, get saved. You won't have to worry about it. We're not even told to be fidgeting about, wondering about when this stuff's going to come. We need to be looking for Jesus who's coming to deliver us and, and take us to Himself just like He did John chapter 4, verse 1, a picture. He that lives forever and ever 
He's full of wrath. But he's also the shelter from that wrath through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then the last verse here of chapter 15. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. And from His power. And no man, not even men in their glorified bodies in heaven at that point. The church, the elders, tribulation saints, even this angel that's talking to John... John finds out later, is not, he goes to worship him, and the angel says, no, 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 I'm one of your fellow servants. This is actually a glorified believer. John sees as an angel, we find out later. Even he can't approach. No man can approach or enter this temple in heaven till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. What we're going to see here is God's glory, the fullness of His glory and power in heaven regarding His wrath upon sin. There were times in the Bible where men saw God. They just didn't see Him in all His glory. You can see God. He can reveal Himself and you can see His form. There were those who saw His form, but it was not in all His glory. Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock just to see, to be able to, to, to survive when God passed by. And his backside was revealed for just a moment. And then it profoundly affected Moses' face to where it shone for some time like an angel. In Exodus 24, we're told that Moses and the elders and Joshua went up to the mountain and and had a, a banquet, had a meal, and it says they saw the God of Israel. But what you'll see is that they didn't see God in all His glory, and they certainly didn't see Him in all His his entire figure. In Exodus chapter 24, 9 and 10, Then went up Moses and Aaron and Naab and Abihu and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under His feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in His clearness. And so, uh, it says, They saw God, verse 11, and they did eat and drink. The elders saw God, but it wasn't in all His glory. Because all His glory... Even those in heaven that are glorified can't approach the temple. Matthew said, I mean, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to make sure I don't get my Beatitudes mixed up here. Um, blessed are the... Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yeah, they'll see God, just not in His complete and total glory. John 14, 9, Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Absolutely, amen. But not in all His glory. I don't believe that any created being will ever see God in all of His glory. Because those that are redeemed and in their glorified bodies can't approach this temple when it's filled with the glory of God. In fact, the righteous have called upon the Lord to to avenge them. Now the sea of glass is full. Now the fullness of the fellow servants that were mentioned in chapter 6 is filled up. Now it's time for the umpire to call the game and to step on the stage. And before he does so, and before this wrath is poured out, his blood boils over and it translates into glory filling filling that heavenly temple. And the righteous are told, step back and watch out. 
I'm gonna, it's, time, it's time to pour out vengeance, but you need to step back and watch out. Just like Israel was told to stay away from that mountain when God came to spoke to Moses. Not even animals were allowed to approach it. They were to stay away because you approach at a hazard of your own lives. God's glory is a hazard to any created being in its fullness, even in this scene in heaven. Step back and watch out. Such is the uh, state of things at the end of chapter 15. And as we go into chapter 16, we're going to go really quickly through the vile judgments. Now, I believe chronologically that these vile judgments are taking place near the end of the tribulation. This is not stuff that is drawn out over a long period of time. These happen very quickly. Just like it did with Pharaoh in the Exodus. Very quickly. In fact, four of the seven vials are on a worldwide scale after the pattern of four of the Egyptian plagues. And the Egyptian plagues happen pretty quickly. This will happen really quick. I mean, they're so devastating that the world couldn't continue much longer after them anyway. Everybody would die out and Jesus wouldn't have to come back and kill everybody at the Armageddon because everybody would die. So, I mean, this, these are judgments that could possibly take place as quick as over a week of time. One day right after another. So we are nearing the end and the consummation of all things. Chapter 15 is a prelude to the seven vials. Connects it to the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And then in chapter 15, 16, we're going to have the specifics of the seven vials. So next time I'll start with chapter 16. Praise God, I fulfilled my word today. I believe I could preach all of chapter 18 in the Sunday. We'll see. But now I won't be pressured. Uh, I've kept my word. And so um, now we can relax. So we're going to move quicker through these last chapters. Uh, and it'll actually be kind of a sad day when this is done because it's been going on for years. So uh, I'm not sure at this point if I'll be with you next Sunday. I'll, I'll figure that out in the next couple of days. But uh, let's go ahead and pray over the food. Father, thank you for this meal you've provided. I know the hour's late and we're all hungry, but I praise you that we've been able to feast on your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for helping me finish the chapter and for the humble hearts that are willing to sit and listen. Lord, for the worship this morning and for all the prayer prayer requests, we lift them up before you and ask that you would intervene. Thank you, Lord, that we've not been appointed to wrath. And Lord, you're such a glorious God that even we can't approach you in all of your glory. And that's an amazing thing, Lord. Uh, that's an amazing thing. And we praise you for that. And But we praise you that you loved us enough to become man so that we, whoever sees Jesus sees God the Father. And whoever has Jesus in his life has God in his life. So we thank you for that. In these dark days, Lord, we pray that after the manner of the martyrs that, Lord, you would avenge the sins against the righteous, the persecutions of the righteous happening even today upon the wicked, and that you would bring these things to pass like Isaiah cried, How long, O Lord? How long? Why won't you just rend the heavens and come down? We cry, Lord, but we know that everything is for a purpose and in your timing, and we trust you with that. On this national day of prayer that's been proclaimed, Lord, we ought to be praying for our country every day. It doesn't make it special. I'm just encouraged that our president would call the nation to something that I haven't seen from Republican presidents. I think Reagan maybe was the last one that even did that, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, Lord, I pray for our nation that you would have mercy upon us, that in judgment that comes, people would wake up and that, that people would come to Christ and that these ministries that are pouring all this aid down into Texas, even I heard a testimony about Southern Baptist North American Mission Board yesterday, they would not forget 
that none of these efforts have any lasting value without the gospel. And I pray that men would be bold to speak the truth and to use the aid and the, the, the judgment of this storm to warn people about God's righteousness and to flee to Jesus Christ. So I pray the gospel would go out more than anything else. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.